Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the most gruesome stories this week was that of crime boss Whitey Bulger. He was 89 years old and transferred to a new prison facility, and then within hours, he was murdered. The details were very gruesome, and we'll get into it in just a little bit. All these questions arose why such a high-profile guy would be moved to general population. Investigators are treating it as a homicide, and then they believe that it was some other mob hitman that ended up taking him out. My producer, Miranda, joined me for this story, and we started off with a little bit of background on who Whitey Bulger was. Have you ever seen the movie The Departed? Yes. It's okay. a very good movie. Yeah, one of my favorites. Well, you know the Jack Nicholson character that is based on Whitey Bulger. He's a mafia boss who was also an FBI informant, and he would supply information on what was going on with the New England Mafia, which was his gang's main rival, when the FBI, all they wanted to do was bring down the Italian Mafia. Right. So he was a big, big help with that. At some point, he was tipped off that he was going to get indicted himself. He was going to get busted for participating in gang activities. He fled, and he moved around, ultimately landing in Santa Monica, California, where he was captured in 2000. 2011, then convicted in 2013 in 11 murders and a long list of other crimes. And he was sentenced to life behind bars. And like you said, Oscar, he had just arrived to this new prison on Monday. And within like two to three hours, yeah. he had been murdered by the other inmates. So that leads to all the new questions. Why was he moved to this prison in the first place? He was a frail 89-year-old man. He was a snitch, a known snitch for the for the FBI. Why was he placed in general population instead of more protective housing? Little by little, this all the details have been coming out, and it looks like he was killed because it was a mob hit. Like They wanted revenge for putting all sorts of guys in jail and being this snitch. So now, what do we know about how he was killed in his cell? Well, there are a couple of things, and I'll get into the gruesome details in a second, but I do want to get into one of the reasons why he got moved to this prison in the first place, because seemingly everything was going fine at his last prison. There's two theories. And there may be one of them might be a conspiracy is that the feds wanted to get rid of Whitey Bulger. They moved him there on purpose because they knew that there were a couple of dudes in there who would happily take him out. And the excuse to leave was because he was accused to be having a improper relationship with a female psychologist at his most previous prison. Yeah. So he was causing problems. And uh, not only did the mob want to get rid of him, but I guess prison officials wanted to get rid of him. The FBI wanted him gone. Everybody wanted him gone. So. He got taken out and he did not get taken out nicely, Oscar. According to the New York Times, there were four men who participated in this severe beating, two of whom were seen wheeling Whitey Boulder in his wheelchair because he couldn't walk. They wheeled him into a corner of his cell at about 6 a.m. Monday morning into a corner that was obstructed by camera. So nobody could see what happened. But when they did find him, they determined that he was beaten brutally with a lock in a sock. And then a shiv was used to gouge his eyes out. And there was also an attempt to cut out his tongue. There was a lot of blood in Bulger's mouth. They don't know if the tongue was actually removed, but they say that this is pretty typical hit style murders for rats. Eyes gouged out so you don't see and tongue cut out so you can't talk. Yeah, they said that in the New York Times reporting, they said that his eyes appeared to have been dislodged from his head, although it was unclear whether the attackers (laughs) gouged them out 
or if they were knocked out because he was beaten so severely. I mean, I think man. we all know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, and they so there is cameras on the cell apparently, and that's they saw the men wheel him in there to get out to get out of the vision of the cameras. Right. The actual beating and murder was not caught on camera, as reports say so far. But I mean, man, you know exactly what happened. So. They have some suspects. One of them is a known mob hitman. His name is Freddie Geese. He's 51 years old, and he and his brother were sentenced to life in prison back in 2011 for their roles in several violent crimes, including the murder of a guy called Adolfo Big Al Bruno, and he was a Genovese crime family, so right. the Italian mafia guy that got killed. These two brothers, the Geese brothers, were Greek, so they weren't allowed to be like made men in the Italian mafia. It's yeah, the that's... same scene from Goodfellas and why Ray Liotta's character can't be right. a made man it's so crazy so it's like the it's like the movies but they were still enforcers for them oh yeah yeah exactly this plays out this is like the final scene in the whitey bulger story now, i'll you know? watch that you know black mass with johnny depp was terrible but i will watch whatever they make about this one <laughs> and they said that there are a couple of reasons why freddie geese would want to kill whitey bulger primarily because freddie hated rats but also freddie hated guys who abused women right and whitey bulger was a a rat but he also was a man who abused and killed women. So it's very simple. All these questions just arise. Like, he's such a high-profile guy, a known rat, ties to all the mob families and things like that. And he's going to be a target for life. Why would they put him in there? Also, he's disabled. He's not able yeah. to defend himself. He's confined to a wheelchair. They said he could stand up, but he wasn't able to walk. Apparently, he damaged his hip in the last two years of his incarceration in, in solitary confinement. He was continuously falling off of the bed and re-injuring his hip. He was... So, Nearly a 90-year-old man. Yeah. Old police commissioners and old investigators and guys that kind of know this mob culture very well, they're like, I don't understand how this guy could have been left alone for this. It seems like they let it happen. Within hours of arriving, he was killed, like as if these hitmen knew he was coming. When so. it was 6 a.m., Oscar, how common is it for at 6 a.m. guards to not be around and yeah. inmates to be allowed to freely move about in the cell halls. Well, there it is. The end to James Whitey Bulger. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. My favorite story of the week has to do with spies. The Trump administration is stepping up its efforts to target China over economic espionage and stealing of intellectual property. We spoke to Garrett Graff. He's a contributing editor at Wired for how China recruits spies in the U.S. This is part of what has really been a concerted 15 or 20 year espionage campaign by the Chinese government to steal and appropriate Western intellectual property and technological know-how and bring it back to China and boost their economy. An underreported aspect of the incredible economic growth that China has seen over the last two decades has been the amount of that ha that has come because of stolen Western intellectual property. The book that you mentioned, Dawn of the Code War, and then some of the recent writing I've been doing in Wired, tries to look at how the government has been trying to combat those threats from China. And what we had seen was a very concerted strong push by the Obama administration in 2014 and 2015 that brought this Chinese espionage campaign to what was then a temporary halt. And they did that through some prosecutions, some public naming and shaming of Chinese espionage efforts, 
And then that truce has broken down really over the last year. And we've seen an explosion of cases from the U.S. Justice Department in the spring, summer, and fall this year of both new economic espionage efforts and Chinese espionage efforts, as well as going back and punishing some of the bad behavior that happened during that earlier era as well. The indictment that you mentioned of the 10 Chinese intelligence officers and hackers deals with behavior primarily from 2010 through 2015. And the loss of the intellectual property can cost the United States billions of dollars. There was a report from the United States Trade Representative, they did a seven-month investigation and said that the Chinese theft of American intellectual property currently costs between $225 billion to $600 billion annually. And it's all sorts of stuff. Uh, They are stealing software to control wind turbines. They were trying to figure out how to make titanium dioxide, which uh, I think it was DuPont has this proprietary multi-stage process for producing this brilliant white color And they're trying to steal all sorts of stuff. Motorola phone technology back when Motorola was really big in the cell phone game. So it's a lot of stuff and a lot of money that, as you were saying, they take it back and then they incorporate it into their technology. And then they're the leader in that industry sector and leaving the U.S. behind. The article that you wrote was about how China recruits their spies in the United States. And I thought it was super fascinating because, again, we've spoken about these things before and they play out like movies, like spy movies. So tell us how they recruit their spies. They start off by spotting potential people that they can coerce or get into their fold. Exactly. And most of what we have been talking about and what the U.S. government has been focused on is economic espionage through cyber means. So hacking into companies' systems and stealing their trade secrets. There's a much smaller number of cases, though, that is what I dove into for this Wired article, which is how China has actually recruited Western spies on their behalf and how they have attempted to recruit employees or intelligence assets here in the United States or in Europe and the process through which they do that. And there was actually a a big case just this fall, one of the biggest coups from the U.S. Justice Department was that they captured a Chinese intelligence officer in Belgium and extradited him to the United States to stand trial here. It'll be the first time a Chinese intelligence officer has stood trial in the United States. And so walking through that case where he had tried to recruit an engineer from GE Aviation basically to betray GE Aviation and hand over the trade secrets of some of their proprietary aerospace designs. And the way that he sort of did that through bringing the engineer over to China as part of what he thought was, a pro- what the engineer thought was a professional exchange, offering him some money, <laughs> offering to bring him back for another guest lecture and then sort of gradually transforming the seemingly professional friendship into an espionage opportunity. And money is at the forefront at a lot of this. I know they have an acronym 
that we can get into a little bit later. But first, they start off by spotting out who potential recruits can be. Yes, and that's really the heart of a lot of espionage work is who do you actually approach as a recruit? And one of the weird things that we are coming to understand, and this is not necessarily just Chinese espionage, I'm sure intelligence agencies around the world are doing this, but a lot of that asset spotting these days is taking place on sites like LinkedIn, where you have intelligence recruiters basically trolling LinkedIn to see who's working at which company. Right. They're looking for people who are placed, you know, well-placed in a certain company, something that they would want to get. Exactly. And that they, one of the people who's been charged this fall in one of these Justice Department cases was basically a Chinese recruit who was downloading background checks from the web. I mean, sort of those whitepages.com check that you can find with people online. And he was sending potential recruits off of those background checks and sending them back to China and saying, here, these are the people that you want to target as your next round of assets. And then the next stage, after they spot these people, they know who could be a potential benefit to them is the assessing. And basically, how might we encourage you to spy for us? And this is where that acronym uh, I was talking about comes in. It's MICE, money, ideology, coercion, and ego. And so how does this part of it work? Well, this is a classic intelligence formulation of why people betray countries or companies where they're trusted. It's they're in it for the money. They're in it for the ideology. They're coerced or forced to do it, or they like the ego boost of leading the double life. We have seen China target Westerners in almost all of these categories, but there have been some notable cases this year targeting former U.S. government intelligence operatives who are down on their luck and need money and have bills to pay and have been convinced to spy on China's behalf just for out and out payment. Yeah. One of the cases this year was a former defense intelligence officer who received about $200,000 from the Chinese government. Yeah, he was making a bunch of different trips and off foreign particularly, he kind of came back, everything was like 19 grand, 30 grand, 20 grand, $53,000 he was getting after some trips that he was making back and forth to deliver information and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't exactly say that in the court documents, but it certainly seems like that was actually how the U.S. government first got on to him, was watching him bring these suspicious amounts of cash back into the United States. The next step is uh, developing who this person is, you know, asking for small things and leading up to bigger things. A lot of times they would even encourage a lot of people to, hey, why don't you go back and uh, join the State Department, join the CIA so that they can get some more of these uh, secrets that they wanted to get their hands on. This is sort of something important in these Chinese cases, but also that we see in Russian intelligence as well when operations targeting Westerners, which is very rarely do you ever get approached by someone who just out and out asks you to spy for them. A lot of intelligence recruiting is about developing that friendship and that relationship right. first. It's not an in Chinese intelligence officer asking you to betray your country. It's your buddy who brings you on all of these fun <laughs> professional exchanges to China saying, oh, hey, you know, we're having some real challenges with our turbofan development. Do you think you could help us by showing us some of the designs that you have found successful on? And we'll go from there. And that they sort of try to walk you down this 
path to being an intelligence asset without you necessarily realizing the lines that you're crossing along the way. What happens like after you've built that relationship and you know you got somebody that can kind of get deliver stuff, what's the day to day like? One of the quotes I saw in there is, you know, today's espionage often relies on encrypted communication tools, secret phone calls and emails left in draft folders. Like how does that work with when you need to give people assignments and all that stuff? This is what's known as that final fifth stage, the handling of an intelligence asset. Once you have someone hook, line, and sinker as an asset, need ways to actually contact them and exchange information and get the information that they're collecting. And in many ways, in the Cold War era, that used to be those physical dead drops or park bench meetings of espionage movies of, of yesterday. Now, today, in you know what, what I call in, in this book, the Code War, what you're seeing is that almost all of that takes place from a distance and that you don't necessarily have to have people meeting in physical space anymore in order to conduct espionage. And that makes it much harder for people to detect because this is a game now that sort of every intelligence agency plays. This is how China does it. This is also how the U.S. does it. And I talk about in that Wired article, one of the really remarkable intelligence failures of the United States over the last decade was that many of its Chinese assets were actually uncovered we know this thanks to reporting by the New York Times and by foreign policy because the U.S. had bad operational security. They were using a communications tool that was not as secure as they thought it was. And the Chinese, it appears, were able to penetrate it and thus be able to figure out the address book of America's spies in China. Where do we go next with this? Because, as you said, there was a deal back with the Obama administration. And then once he left, everything kind of there was a free for all again. And now the Trump administration is putting renewed effort into this. How do we get them to try to stop stealing intellectual property and, and recruiting people to get them this information? And this is, I think, one of the things that many people don't understand about the backdrop of this trade war that Donald Trump is picking with China is that we sort of lose sight often given the madness and chaos surrounding Donald Trump's policies on a daily basis, that some of these are actually very grounded and thoughtful policy debates that are playing out. And he and the U.S. Trade Representative's office, which you mentioned earlier, have grounded a lot of their rhetoric and complaints about the Chinese trade war in this language of we need them to stop stealing our intellectual property. And that this is a major part of why the U.S. government is raising tariffs on Chinese goods is to try to sort of force them back into the box as a way to be able to use a lot of these tools like criminal indictments, like sanctions, like tariffs in order to try to drive China back to the table and say, look, civilized nations don't steal each other's secrets for economic benefit. Garrett Graff, he's a contributing editor at Wired, and he's uh, the co-author of the book Dawn of the Code War. Thank you very much for joining us, Garrett. It's a pleasure to be back. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.